college students and cook them some awesome food or some almost awesome food. It doesn't really matter if you're that good or not. Um, so my name is Tyler. I'm uh, your backup preacher, if you don't know me. Uh, I, don't, I do want to share um, some exciting news with you all this morning. Uh, Quincy, my wife, has a full-on baby growing inside of her this today, and it's so exciting. Um, I love you guys, and I just want you to know that... Um, now, I do want to share, though, uh, and I don't know if this is meant for you, but um, this past year we, we suffered the loss of two pregnancies. So um, when Quincy and I would hear about another person getting pregnant, um, it was sort of like this reminder. It was like a selfish reminder, obviously, but it still reminded us of that pain. And um, I don't know if anyone in this room is going through that right now, but if you are... I'm sorry. You're not alone. Um, God's with you, and don't lose faith, please. And if that's, um, if that's you, I would love to talk with you about that. I would love to walk through that with you. Um, I'm, I'm serious. And if that's not what you're going through, if you just feel alone, you feel like um, God's not moving in your life and you don't know what's going on, um, we'd still love to meet with you because that's why we're here. That's why we are here together as a family to walk through life in those areas of our um, lives together. So let's, let's get these kids going to Children's Church, all right? Let's go. Awesome. So we are making leaps and bounds in our current series uh, titled Intelligent Faith, Deep Thinkers Following Jesus. And what we intend with this series is to engage with the biggest questions, the, the biggest concerns, and the, the proof that concerns faith in the God of the Bible. Because Jesus himself said, you shall love the Lord with all of your, uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your what? With all of your mind. With all of your mind. Yes, your mind. Times, Thomas said it before. When you come to church, when you um, come to Jesus, you don't have to throw your brain in the trash when you walk through the door, okay? We have minds, and God said to use them for His glory and, and to strengthen our faith. And when these questions come up in our lives, we don't, we don't want to just answer with like, oh, yeah, I just, I just have faith. You know, I just, I just have faith. Well, you have faith in what? What do, you, what do you have faith in? How do you know the Jesus that you're praying to is in fact the Jesus that we find in Scripture? You have faith? No, we ought to be people that say, yes, I have faith because I know the Jesus of Scripture. He has revealed himself to me. I know him. I love him. I love his word. And when these questions come to us, we can say this is what he says about those questions. And so, so today, uh, we're going to do some really light and refreshing discourse on the topic of hell. Um, more specifically, we are going to answer the question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Easy enough, okay? I think I'm, I think I'm going to need some help on this one. I think we might need some help on this one. So let's just pray together this morning. 
Father, you have all of the answers. <laughs> because you're right. You are good. And you are so sufficient. And Lord, right now, when we pursue this topic, this, this heavy topic, this um, can be sort of dangerous topic to talk about, Lord, I just pray that you protect our hearts, that you protect our minds, but you also fill them up. Because we need that. We don't need our answer to this question. We need your answer to this question. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. So how could a loving God send someone to hell? This question is one of the most commonly used methods of trying to debunk the Christian faith. Like if all the questions fail, this one is going to demolish Jesus, right? Um, so they think, and uh, it is, it's an easy jab <clears throat> for the skeptic. And it's also an easily dismissed doctrine of the Christian too. We a lot of times want to act like it doesn't exist. Like, honestly, I like, I like to preach about the really happy stuff. The really encouraging and really uplifting messages because they're easy. <laughs> because they're easy. It's easy to make light of the light. It is not easy to make dark of the dark in this world. I'm sure you're much like me and just thinking like, if we could not talk about hell, that'd be great. That'd be great. Even C.S. Lewis himself said that there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this and if it lay in my power. He said that. He's like, yeah, hell's a tough topic to deal with. But there is one problem with the reality of hell, and that is that it is real, that it is important, and that it isn't up for debate. Don't take my word for it. The Bible has a lot to say about hell, a lot. And when you start reading the Gospels, you find that, the G that Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, right? In fact, if you count the verses, Jesus speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. Tim Keller uh, gives us this insight. Uh, it, it's awesome. He, he says there's, this, there's an ecological balance. There's this ecology to scripture, scriptural truth that must not be disturbed. So if you think of ecology, it's you know, the, the environment of, of plants, animals, everything coexisting. If an area is rid of its predatory uh, or undesirable animals, the balance of that environment may be so upset that the desirable uh, plants and animals are lost through overbreeding with a limited food supply. The nasty predator that was eliminating, eliminated actually kept in balance the number of all the other animals and plants necessary to the particular ecosystem. In the same way, if we play down bad or harsh doctrines within the historic Christian faith, we will find to have our shock that we have gutted all our pleasant and comfortable beliefs too. So it is real. It is important. So our answer must be honest and it must be biblical. I, I do not want to waste your time this morning with some watered-down version of hell because with a watered-down version of hell, you get a watered-down version of the cross. And so for many of us this morning, this might be a little tough. It might be challenging. It might get a little awkward. And there's a reason so many churches avoid this subject altogether. We are not going to be one of those churches. We want to be faithful to what God says in his word and all of it, not what we feel comfortable with. And so I think to answer 
the question of would a loving God send someone to hell appropriately, we need to look at two details of that question. The nature of God and the nature of hell. Nature of God and the nature of hell. Because if we don't get these two concepts to stand up on their own, the whole thing starts to crumble down. Okay? So I want to look at these two things within the context of a particular passage. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's go to uh, the Gospel of John. we be in chapter 3. It'll also be on the screen and on your handout if you have one of those, which I highly recommend getting one. Um, it's going to be John 3, starting in 16. Surprise. Okay. Here we go. So, it begins by saying this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. This is the judgment right here. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's interesting how condemnation and judgment follows right after John 3.16. We don't typically read it in its entirety. This tells me that alongside this glorious reality that the love of God sent his only son, Jesus... There's also this message of justice that is being proclaimed. So with love, and we have justice going on here. And so with this passage sitting in the back of our heads, we just read it, I just wanted to kind of soak and marinate. Um, I want to start looking at these two concepts in light of this passage. So let's just take a few minutes um, to to just lay out what we're talking about this morning. It's going to be maybe like a little bit of like a classroom setting. I mean, there's just things that we need to go over so that we know what we're talking about, so we know what we're looking at. Um, So just hang in, uh, just pay attention, because uh, we need to look at these things before we we know the answer to the question. And so let's just first look at the nature of God. I just want to start by saying God is just. He is totally fair. He is a perfect judge. He is not out to get you. He is the most competent, intelligent, impartial, and fair judge you will ever have. Nothing flies under his radar. And the Bible's piled with justice of God. Let's look at Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who await for him. Let's look at Isaiah 61, 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery. I hate wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. Last one, Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock is perfect. His work is perfect. For all of his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is three of so many scriptures. Every human being 
can be guaranteed from what we're reading absolute justice. Every human being can be guaranteed justice. But this is precisely where we run into the wall, right? Because the truth of the matter is that God's justice exposes man's and and woman's inadequacies. The Bible says that every person has failed to live up to God's moral law. And this moral failure is called sin, right? The Bible says that all persons are under the power of sin. None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Right together they have gone wrong. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so every single one of us are under this divine justice. It is clear in in the passage we just read, you, you reap what you sow. You reap... What you sow, the Bible says uh, in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. (laughs) For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The prophet Ezekiel declared, the soul that sins shall die. And then later Paul um, echoes that. He says the wages of sin is death. That's how severe it is. You reap what you sow. This is justice in its purest form. And so throughout all of Scripture, we see that nobody can measure up. Right? It puts everybody on the same playing field. This justice in any moment of our lives, if it were applied without mercy, we would be toast. Okay? We would be toast. I would be toast every moment of my life because I am a sinner. And in, that, in the courtroom, I am guilty every day of betraying God and should be rightfully held responsible for that. But it says the wages of sin is death. I should rightfully die every day because of my sin. Does this make God some cosmic tyrant that's out to get me? No, he's just being fair. He's being just. So we're caught up in this paradox that that makes absolutely no sense if you think about it for a second because we ask ourselves the question, why would a loving God send good people to hell But the real question is, why would a good God allow bad people into heaven? Doesn't make sense. Based on the severity of our wrongdoing and sin, it doesn't make sense for us to stand before him and let alone him to call us his own. On the one hand, we have his justice and his holiness, which demand punishment for sin, rightly deserved, right? On the other hand, we see God's love and His mercy, which demand reconciliation. Those things demand forgiveness of our sins because He is good. Both are essential to His nature, His love and justice. Neither of those things can be compromised. So what is God to do in this paradox? What is He going to do about it? The answer is Jesus Christ is what He does about it. He is the fulfillment of God's justice and love. They meet at the cross, the love and the wrath of God. At the cross, we see God's love for people and his wrath upon sin. They meet in the middle in this beautiful miracle where Jesus died in our place. He voluntarily took upon himself the death penalty of the sin that we deserved, 
And the Bible says that in this love, not that we have loved God, but he, that he loved us. He first loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so the nature of God, what we can assume is both just and loving. The nature of God is both just and perfectly loving. So let's look at the nature of hell. In light of that, I want to begin with what hell is not. Uh, hell is not a place where every person sent there serves their sentences and is tormented as long as their list of their sins are. Um, that's the view of uh, conditionalism and later turns into annihilationism. That the people there just serve their sentence and then they are destroyed after that. You know, they, uh, they stop existing. There's, there's no real eternal punishment in that view. This can come about from the question like, um, is hell a disproportionate punishment? Because, like, he only sins so much on the earth. Why does he have to spend eternity paying for it, right? That's not what hell is like. Hell is also not non-existent. Hell is also not non-existent. The universalist would love to believe that Jesus' work on the cross paid the price for every person in the world. Therefore, there'd be no need for hell because nobody's going there. There would be no need for a moral Jesus, too. These views sound really sweet to the ear, but there's one problem with it. It's the Bible. This, one, this one's easy to get out of the picture, um, the, the universalist view. Paul says in the book of Romans um, that salvation is for all who, what, exist? All who breathe? No, all who believe. Salvation is for all who believe. And I've got some news for you guys. There's a lot of people that don't believe. There's a lot of people that have died that do not believe. And so either the Bible contradicts itself, and I could end this right now, we could all go home and never come back to church, or it is true that salvation is for all who believe, period. So, and so that leads us to the question, what does hell look like? What does it look like? What is it like in there? And I've got to be honest with you guys, um, I don't know. That's my answer. Uh, there's a lot of metaphors, there's a lot of images on what it is like. That we read about in Scripture, about darkness, about fire, the lake of fire, right? Well, how can there be darkness and fire at the same time? Exactly. I think that we're in darkness outside of God's light and grace and in fire in the sense that we're in torment and miserable. But is it like all the movies and all the cartoons portray it to be? I would say probably not. But I'm afraid to say that it might be a little bit worse than what we think it might be. It might be worse. So I want to look at five truths about the nature of hell. Five things. Um, the first one is this. Hell is what hell is because God is who God is. So hell is what hell is because God is who God is. God tells us about hell to demonstrate to us the magnitude of his holiness. Hell is what hell is because the holiness of God is what is it is. Hell should make us stand in awe at the righteous and just holiness of God. 
It should make us tremble before his majesty and grandeur. And ironically, in doing away with hell, you do away with the very resources that God that, that show God's justice. When, when a person goes through pain and anguish, they need to know that there's a God of such holiness, of such perfection, of such beauty, that his reign can tolerate no evil. It doesn't tolerate it. None of it falls through the cracks. That there is, in fact, hope in the trials we face because of Jesus. And I've said this before, um, but for the unbeliever, this world and the things that they experience in it will be the closest they ever get to heaven. That's for the unbeliever. And for the believer, this world and the things that they experience in it will be the closest they get to hell. For the unbeliever, this world is the closest they'll get to heaven. For the believer, it's the closest that we'll get to hell. When we face trials, we have to know that hell is real and that, and that is what we are being saved from. And I want to lead to the second one. Hell shows us the extent of God's love in saving us. And so why did Jesus speak about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? Well, much like the first truth we looked at, it's because he wanted us to see what he was going to endure on the cross on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus' punishment was pure earthly torment. This, this bloodied, disfigured remnant of a man was given a cross that he carried to his own execution. And he's hanging there in immense pain. He's slowly suffocating to death. And the worst part was not that, but the separation from the Father that Jesus felt. A separation that was hell itself. He says, my God, my God, he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And by the way, just to imagine this, if, if there were like a person that you had no relationship with and they just came up to you and said, like, hey, I never want to have anything to do with you ever again, you would say, okay, I don't know, I don't know that's weird. Um, it doesn't really matter to me, right? But if you had one of your closest friends, your closest friend, tell you that they don't want to have anything to do with you. There's a significant difference in feeling in that than with somebody you don't know. Imagine the emotional and the physical anguish that Jesus had to have felt when he was crying that out. In all of this, Jesus was taking the hell of our sin into his body and onto his body. And people feel like that hell is some great blemish of God's love, but it is such the opposite. Hell magnifies uh, for us the love of God by showing us how far God went and how much he went through to save us. And so the third truth I want to look at is people are eternal. Um, people are eternal. C.S. Lewis, um, again, wants to know that, that hell is necessary. It's a necessary conclusion from the Christian belief that human beings were created to live forever. He writes this, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and, and this must be either true or false. Now, there are good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to just live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. 
In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he has made... um, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has set eternity in the human heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4, this one's awesome. For we know that if the tent that our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting on what... Putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, in this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we will be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is moral may be swallowed up in life. Swallowed up by life, eternal life. And that leads us to the fourth one. In one sense, God doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves. Hell is this culmination of telling God to get out. You keep telling God to leave you alone, and finally God says, okay. Okay. That's why the Bible describes it as darkness. God is light. The absence of light is darkness. On earth we experience light and things like love, friendship, and the beauty of creation. These are all remnants of the light of God's presence. But when you tell God you don't want Him as the Lord and the center of your life, eventually you get your wish. And with God goes all of His blessings, all of His mercy, all of His grace. And so we have two options, to live with God or to live without God. And if you say, I don't want God's authority, I would rather live for myself, we call that hell. Again, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In the long run, to answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell itself a question, what are you asking God to do? To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, and you may have heard this before, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Let's look at the fifth one. This is the last one. In another sense, God doesn't send sinful people to hell. He doesn't just send them to hell. He demands that they be there. He demands that sin be there. This is true in the sense that, in fact, God's justice is being brought to fruition. So we choose sin. Our will is to be enslaved to our sin. We, in our nature, choose hell. But it is the justice of God that allows hell to exist. That's a weird phrase to hear. It is the justice of God that allows hell to exist. His justice demands that there is penalty for sin. And so no matter how we analyze this concept of hell, it often sounds uh, to, uh, to us a place of cruel and unusual punishment. If there's um, at all any way that we can take any comfort in studying hell, we can take it in the full assurance that there will be no cruelty there. It is impossible for God to be cruel. Cruelty, in this sense, involves giving giving punishment that is more severe than the crime. Cruelty, in this sense, is unjust. And so God is always right, and so therefore there will be never an innocent person that is punished by God. 
with these five truths about the nature of hell, I want to try to attempt to define it. Um, I want to call it as this. Hell is the eternal conscious torment in separation from God, where those that are not redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ are deprived of the things of which are most foundational to their existence. That is God's grace, his mercy, and his blessings. We're deprived of the things that are um, most foundational to our existence. And that's not the end-all definition, uh, but it works. So how do we use that answer, use that to answer the question where loving God sends someone to hell? We answer it by saying a loving and a just God demands that all sin and unrighteousness must be eternally dealt with by the wrath of God. If all of it isn't accounted for, if there were a sliver of sin, if there were a sliver of unrighteousness that broke through the cracks of the wrath of God, he would not be a just God. It wouldn't be paid for all the way. He would be a horrible judge. But he is a just God, and he is a perfect judge, and he has dealt with every ounce of sin, and he has dealt with every ounce of unrighteousness on the cross through Jesus Christ. And we must look this reality in the face when we start reading Scripture, and I pray that none of us turn away and act like this is some fairy tale. Jesus endured hell for us so that none of us would have to endure it ourselves. That's why Jesus is the key. And so the begging question for this morning and for your entire life is what will you do with Jesus in your life? What will you do with Jesus? He is that which all of this points to. He is how God is both just and loving. This should cause us to have great comfort. It should also break our hearts for the world. It should cause us to fear the Lord and to put our trust in Him, in this sovereign King. I will tell you this. Being afraid of going to hell will not save you. It's not what this is about. I so don't want this to be about that. This is about the amazing good news of the gospel. How would you live your life like this were true? How would you do it? I know for me, I walked the Christian walk for far too long without acting like this was true. I did. I didn't want to act like hell was real. Because if hell isn't real, then I don't really need to share the gospel. I don't really need to worry about the people around me. All I need to worry about is my personal walk with Jesus, right? And what God has done for me. I I thought that Jesus um, only saved me from my anxiety. I thought that Jesus only saved me from my lust. I thought that Jesus only saved me from my anger, I thought that he went to the cross so that I wouldn't be held captive by these things, but I never thought about how narrow that view is of the cross. Yes, he died for those things. He will heal you of those things, but there is so much more that he died for. There is so much more. He made salvation possible. He made living with him forever possible. 
the sins that he saves us from in this temporary life. Yes, he gives us freedom in this life, but those are like the crumbs that are left over from this ridiculous feast of redemption of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross. The cross covers all of our sins. Every single one. The cross delivers you from all of God's wrath. The cross delivers you from the death to eternal life. It is the most significant gift that he offers to all of us right now. And so what will you do with that offer? What will you do with this offer? He is a just, he is a loving God that, brought, that bought you with a price. The, price. the price that you could not pay, that I could not pay, that every single one of us in this room could, together could not pay the price. And so what do we do with this offer? Scripture gives us an awesome way to respond to this offer. In Romans 10, 9 through 13, it reads, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It couldn't be more simple. That is what you can do with this offer. Maybe you're like me and you've been walking through life not knowing what you've been saved from, just looking to all of the pretty things about Jesus, all of the pretty parts of Jesus. And my friend, we only know the beauty of our salvation if we come face to face with how repulsive our sin was that held Jesus on the cross. Maybe you need to confess that right now. Maybe you need to call on the name of the Lord right now. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the hundredth time. Maybe for the millionth time. Maybe you need to call on the name of the Lord right now. If the worship team could come up and um, bring the lights down too. We have something that we can remember this good news by. Um, during the last meal before Christ was crucified, he was gathered with his disciples. In the middle of supper, Jesus, he grabs some bread and he lifts it up to his friends. He thanks his Father in heaven for it and he says, take this bread. This bread is broken and eat it. This bread is my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And after he had served the bread, 
he lifted up his cup and he thanked his father in heaven and he presented to his friends he said this is the cup of my new covenant this is my blood poured out for you when you drink this would you please remember me would you remember the extent that I had to go to hold you in my arms would you remember my body broken and my blood pouring out so that you can be close to me that you can be redeemed if you call Jesus Lord this morning this meal is for you if you call upon the name of Jesus as Lord this meal is for you there's going to be a lot of people coming up here and grabbing it. If you haven't yet, just because they are doesn't mean you have to. Because if you haven't yet had the reality, the substance of His grace and His mercy, you don't need the symbol yet. We'd love to talk with you. I'm going to be up here in this corner praying. Um, I'm going to have Michelle sit, uh, over in that corner over there. If you want to pray with her and talk with her, that would be awesome. Edward and Pam are going to be in that back corner uh, over there. Um, you were never meant to go through this alone. And I pray that all of you don't let another Sunday go by without addressing this face to face. The God of the universe loves you so stinking much. Let's worship Him this morning. Let's address this this morning. Let's come together to our Lord this morning.